Let's just do it. Are we recording? Yes, we're one second in, Tom Heinover. <laughs> so we were to Tom and I. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Z Dog, and I'm here with Tom Heinover. Uh, I'm the Z Dog uh, MD producer, for those of you who don't know. And we're going to do whisper talk like they do on NPR, because that's what Z does when he gets along with the microphone. When you, um, <laughs> Tom, when you put a set of headphones on me, I, I get very close to the mic. And uh, <laughs> the mic's compression allows me to really get in the flow state. You hit me up. You hit me up, and you were like, "Hey, how does this? How does this first uh, podcast episode sound?" I was like, "It's great, except for the fact that you're doing podcast voice the whole time." And I was like, "You shut your <laughs> hole, Tom Heinover. What do you want me to do? Talk like this? I can talk like this the whole time." So here, all right. So we we kind of want to talk about like you're like looking forward to 2019, state of healthcare, all that kind of stuff. One of the things that I wanted to bring up to you, this is a fact that I just recently heard. Do you know uh, the number one reason why a healthcare CEO would be fired or has been fired historically? Shitty choice of EHR. Yes. I knew it. IT infrastructure upgrade failure is the number one reason healthcare CEOs uh, get fired, which made me think like, how prophetic is it that the people at the top of the dominance hierarchy are slaves to the machine, just like the people at the bottom of the dominance hierarchy? You know, I bet you even Judy Faulkner, the CEO of Epic, is a slave somehow uh -huh. to the machine because she's got to build this product that serves the masters that are not actually the clinicians. And so this kind of like let me know, it was like, okay, they're not, they're not not changing the system because they have perverse financial incentives, although that's definitely part of it. But they're not not changing the system because they're scared for their livelihoods because they don't understand how this tech works. They don't understand. Like, things are functioning now. They're not functioning well, but they're functioning. And so they're scared to do anything that upsets the apple cart because if it gets tipped over, like... I'm not going to be able to lease that SL 500 next year. You know what I mean? This has been one of the biggest problems, actually. It's true. Yeah. Because it, the, the chief information officer at a hospital, their sole role is to not fuck up mm -hmm. getting the wrong EHR. <laughs> right. I mean, because it's it's a career-ending maneuver. Yeah. Because it's a billion-dollar purchase. You know, I mean, it's a huge amount of money. And the thing is, it, it's all in the instantiation. That's what the EHR vendors will tell you. It's, it's not so much that our product sucks. It's that you guys didn't spend the time implementing it help us help you help us help you help us is what they're saying mm -hmm. and if, you, if 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 you don't you know spend the time with the clinicians on the front line tailoring the the product to what your needs are then it's not going to work but the problem is nobody really knows how to do that and it, what every, like the urologist needs are very different than the obstetricians needs are very different than the general surgeons needs so who are you doing it for now what a tool gawande wrote about in his exceedingly long atlantic article that took me like an hour to read, and I probably could have said in a line, mm -hmm. is basically every single ancillary service, every non-clinician is all weighing in on the EHR and adding little click boxes because they need this document and that document. Oh, you know what? It can do this. So why don't we have the clinician make sure they tell us whether, you know, um, the patient smokes, you know, remotely in the past or whatever, and we need this little box. Right. And so pretty soon, all you're doing is clicking all the boxes. Now, it's interesting because these guys have that whole motivation, which is try not to get fired, so mm -hmm. keep your Lexus, all that. And then the frontline clinicians have the motivation, try not to burn out and die. Right. It's a really, it's a more existential. And there's also, when there's also livelihood uh, issues at stake for frontline clinicians, right? Like if I'm a nurse from Des Moines and I got hit, like, do I say anything about it? Because, you know, the administration is not likely to have my back. And, you know, I have like, you, you ever notice that nurses seem to be the people in their family that like, I've been noticing this around the holiday time that like eight people in their family live off this one woman who's working hard or, or man who's working hard to support all these basically like loser degenerates around them. <laughs> like, 
And I don't know why this seems to be the case, but and I'm not saying it's true for every nurse family, but like the nurse is the linchpin of most families that have a nurse in it. You know, what's interesting is, and again, I don't know if this is projecting, but you are married to a nurse. Yes. Uh, and I just went through the Christmas season, so infer what you will, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it, but I think it brings, it brings up the point, which is people in healthcare are supporting, it's more than just them. Right. There's a whole ecosystem of deadbeats and non-deadbeats <laughs> that they're supporting, and their jobs matter, which is why a lot of ZPAC people tell me, hey, dude, um, I would love to have a voice and complain about this stuff, but even hitting like on your shit puts me in an existential threat of losing my job. Because right. if my nurse manager or whatever sees me hit like on your video about the Jayco confessions where you're making fun of the Joint Commission, I could lose my job. Exactly. So what we have in healthcare is a classic prisoner's dilemma where nobody can move first and nobody can act rationally because to act rationally is act actually to act irrationally if you're not moving as one unit, you mm. know? Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's a, really, we're no better than our incentives. If our incentives are to support our family and continue living in the world and eating, right? then we have to do the wrong thing morally to keep our job. And I think Electronic Health Record is a great example of that. I don't think CEOs or CIOs want a shitty product. They don't want to torture frontline staff. No, they, and like, okay, we've been in the room with a lot of like, you know, top healthcare CEOs and they all really care. They all really want to change it. Yeah. They have no idea what the technical people are talking about. That's clear when you listen to them. Right. And so they're, they're trying to wade between the lines of bullshit. Like, you know, this guy over here is like, we need a healthcare blockchain and I'll tell you why. Okay? <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, you know, a blockchain is something that's public, publicly verifiable so that everybody could read the data, which seems to violate a bunch of the laws we have in healthcare. So maybe you don't want a healthcare blockchain. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they, they can't suss it out. That word, I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes. No, 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 it's true. And the thing is, the technical people actually, like the IT support guys and the people, they actually care a lot. They're really, really deeply morally conflicted. Well, by and they're trying their hardest too, but what they're being told is like, build us a system that works for everybody all the time. And that's not how computer science works. There are trade-offs in, in all yeah, code. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and they're all serving different masters. Exactly. So, so that, that brings me to this interesting thing that happened. So, uh, and, it, and it brings me back to my roots of when I went into medicine. So mm. I graduate UCSF, 1999. And I, I decided consciously I was gonna go to Stanford for a residency. I did not wanna stay at UCSF because I needed a change. I was getting depressed. You know, it was the whole right. thing, a little bit burned out, but still super idealistic. Like I was fired up to be a doctor. I wanted to help people. I wanted to make decisions. I wanted to be autonomous. That was a big deal, like being an intern, being able to write orders and that kind of thing. So there was this guy, Kelly Skeff, who's a professor of medicine at Stanford. He was our, the program director of Stanford's internal medicine residency for like 20 years and is a nationally renowned figure in medical education. He actually has, I think, a degree in education and in medicine. So he's like, and he reminds you a lot. He's like this very wise cat, kind of a little bit of a hippie. He is a little like Jim Henson. He has that Hensonian mm -hmm. affect. He, and, and he speaks in, it, using words like wonderful. Like, I think it's wonderful, Zubin, that you are so passionate about wanting to. And so this guy was this figure, legendary figure. And he built this program that was based around, hey, let's take care of each other and let's learn, let's be passionate about science, but let's also support each other. And it was really great. So I was drawn to that. And it, it actually was that. The problem was, <laughs> and, and so Kelly uh, subsequently um, stepped down as program director years later, and there's, uh, Ron Wattels is there now. But so Kelly continues to study medical education and evangelize around the country. And recently he emailed me and he was like, I want you to see a talk that I just gave. And so I said, oh, that's interesting. So I, I looked at the National Academy of Science, 
talking about clinician burnout. And I'm like, what? Like Kelly probably doesn't even believe burnout exists. Like he's in this world where it's all about, you know, this passion and connection and teaching and learning and this and that. And I watched the thing and I was like, oh my God, it was like a punch in the face. Like the difference between 1999 when these changes were starting to where it is now, where Kelly Skeff is standing in front of the National Academy of Sciences and going, we have taken beautiful, idealistic, intelligent, passionate young people, and we have beaten the crap out of them. And we've turned them into click click boxing slaves that are just looking to get out of the hospital as quickly as they can, trying to leave medicine, and they're miserable. They don't wanna learn. And so anytime Kelly goes on service to teach as an attending, the first thing that uh, residents will say is, well, we really hope you're not gonna slow us down because we have to get through all these patients and get the hell out of here. And all they care about when they hear about a new admission coming to the ER is not, oh, this is a chance to learn or this is an interesting case. Okay, what is all the paperwork I'm gonna have to do to get this person from admission to discharge as quickly as possible? Why? Because all of the pressures now they're being taught are document, discharge, RVUs, which are these relative value units generating value, you know, billing. In other words, it's a cash register that they become throughput, getting people to the hospital quickly, making sure we don't make mistakes. And the billing people and documentation specialists are pinging them all the time. You know, you never really said whether this was sepsis from a bacterial source or an undetermined source. And that matters in terms of how we bill. And they're just, they hate it. And he was saying he was he was seeing these beautiful idealistic people coming in day one, and by day sixty, they were already showing signs of what would eventually become, you know, moral distress, burnout, moral injury, et cetera. And I, to me, th- here was the guy who was the role model, and he's giving us this warning, which we already know because we were there. I, I, then I spent you know ten years at Stanford as a clinician, and I saw it change over time. So. The thing is, when he finishes the talk, he says, well, I'm optimistic. Things are gonna get better. And people are like, why? And he's like, because look at who, who we're dealing with. These are the cream of the crop. They're passionate, they're, they're smart. And you know what? That may give him optimism. It actually terrifies me because it's those smart people who are, have, are easily conditioned mm-hmm. by their training. So they reinforce the system. Yeah. yeah, so what they find is learned helplessness. Well, there's nothing we can do. We can't change the system, so we have to adapt. We have to get more efficient, get more RVUs, more throughput, more click boxes. So we'll get really good at that. And he shows pictures in his talk of these residents just lined up in clinics staring at computers, clicking boxes. And it used to be they'd be in a circle talking about the patients or writing on paper notes where that hand um, mind connection has kind of been documented to cause a kind of deep learning because there's a tactile component mm-hmm. that doesn't happen necessarily with keyboards. So there, there's all this subtlety in how we've changed this job. And now, so he's optimistic because they're good people. I'm optimistic because when these good people actually form part of a social covenant, a social network, this sort of mass network effect that we're creating even with the tribe that we have, and we're talking about 2019 and what we're gonna do, that's where they can actually become empowered by looking at things that actually work, by EHR approaches that reduce clicks and, and overhead, by new incentives and payment plans that it can actually encourage us to do good things for patients and then allow us to do well financially because that is a concern for doctors and nurses, frontline staff. So I'm actually fired up for 2019 to be part of that network node that invokes that change. Because without it, I don't think it's gonna happen. You know, it's interesting uh, hearing you describe what it's like uh, to be a doctor and to deal with the, you know, the paperwork associated with it makes me think that it's it's kind of like doing your taxes every single day that you go to work. <laughs> like that's how complex it is. 
You know? <laughs> That's really a good analogy. Yeah. It really is. It, it, it's like doing Schedule C. Right. Like today I'm going to do Schedule C, self-employment, uh, tax. Okay, let me, let me. What can I deduct? What can I look at? Yeah, what? Yeah. All Did that. I document that receipt? Right. Fuck, I had lunch with Tom, but I didn't say what the purpose was, even uh-huh. though we talked about creating a porn channel. Why are all these overlapping laws? And like, if I do this, I could be audited. If I do this, I couldn't be audited. You know, all that kind of stuff. And the fear of an audit is like the ultimate fear. That's you know, like, malpractice. Oh, yeah. Malpractice. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or or a billing audit, which is even worse. Right. You know, my dad had a Medicare billing audit that just was random. And it was the worst experience of his life. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Always. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what you said about... Um, how high IQ people can often be the drones that, uh, you know, sort of increase the bureaucracy and, mm-hmm. and fortify it. Uh, Nicholas T- Nassim Taleb went on and basically said the exact same thing on Twitter recently, like over the holiday break. And all these people were, and he was he was attacking IQ as a metric and all the academics came out, uh, you know, against him and everything. But that's basically what he was saying is like, I deal in the real world and real systems, like on Wall Street, this is what I saw, that the high IQ people are reinforcing the bureaucracy and they're making it intractable. You know, and it was a really interesting conversation. That doesn't surprise me at all because you look at medicine, it's one of the most intractable bureaucracies mm-hmm. and it's got some of the highest IQ people around. Engineering is another, you know, and the thing is, the other thing is that it's not just medicine, it's all the professions are experiencing this. This sort of, uh, you need to generate revenue, you need to adhere to business principles and therefore the moral values that drove you into it, being a lawyer, being an engineer. Right. Yeah. It, 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 vets have it really, veterinarians have it terrible. They have the, one of the highest rates of suicide. We had, yeah. um, you know, a veterinarian uh, on our show talking about it. And, um, yeah, well, it's like being a lawyer has become more predatory. You know, right. same thing as being a doctor. And it's uh, it's because the incentives are there. And so mm. if you want to say, like, if you're a lawyer, if you want to say, I'm going to do everything by the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law, well, then you're not actually you're not actually doing what you went into the That's law right. to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Same thing with being a doctor. It's very true. Like, I, you can click all the boxes. You can do everything you're supposed to do based on the cookbook uh, algorithm they're telling you or whatever the quality measures that they're measuring. Right. And you can still provide horrible care. In fact, you're more likely to. Yeah. And, you know, one thing Don Berwick said, and he, he, you know, he was the head of uh, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare for a long time, and then he ran the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He's a pretty knowledgeable guy. His politics, some people may disagree with. He's a kind of a single payer guy. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, my feeling is always, well, you can't do single payer until you fix the the care model because you're gonna pay for garbage uh, and, and you're gonna bankrupt the US paying for the same old crap. But but his point is um, uh, what, what Berwick, what were we talking about? I already uh, got derailed. Incentives. Basically. Oh, in, incentives. Yeah. Um, he was saying with measurements, his goal would be to get rid of 75% of the things we measure because right. they don't actually measure quality. So by stripping them away, you open up the throughput of these very smart people to do things that they really wanna do and that they're good at doing. Yeah. You give them the autonomy and the resources to do that. And and then you incentivize it by saying, you know what, um, we're actually gonna pay you to spend time with patients. We're gonna pay you to prevent mm-hmm. disease. We're gonna pay you to, you know, we're gonna focus on primary care, maybe 17% or 15% instead of 5% of our healthcare dollars that we pay now. So those kind of simple things, which means they're gonna be, see the problem is, and when Berwick talks, people get pissed off. Why? Because they're gonna be losers. So less hospitals. Yeah. You have to close hospitals because hospitals are a failure. That means that you have not prevented disease. You, mm-hmm. you, you it, It's a cost center. It shouldn't be a profit center. But Z, they're like Starbucks. There should be two on every corner. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually. What we really need is more hospitals, freestanding ERs. Have you not heard oh, of this concept? Texas has a lot of those. <laughs> you know? Well, but this is an interesting point because Starbucks creates jobs. Hospitals create jobs. In many small communities, they are the main 
economic engine. And when you talk about, well, we're going to close them down because we're going to prevent, we're going to move care to outpatient, we're going to prevent, or better yet, into people's homes. Right. So actually, you know, have devices that recognize when your breathing is changing and activate a chain of uh, telehealth that then intervenes or have home health workers that come or health coaches or community mm-hmm. workers work, focus on the social determinants of health and, and the food insecurity and education problems and, and, and job safety and those kind of things that, that generate chronic disease, but you're going to put a shit ton of hospital people out of business. You know, right. everybody from the material management guy who's there m- moving the widgets around to to the social workers, to the CEOs. And what do you do with those people? I mean, my feeling is we need less hospitals. We need more integration of care. We need more outpatient care. We need more human interaction with technology that actually helps you do that without destroying the relationship. But then you need to take all those people that have been displaced and retrain them to do something in healthcare that actually focuses on social determinants. How great would it be if you sent them out into the real world rather than having them be in the hospital? That's what I, that's what we're talking about. Right. So you imagine like the person who is currently working in housekeeping mm-hmm. in a hospital. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. So she she speaks Spanish, let's say, and comes from this community. Racist. Yes, highly racist. <laughs> Everything I say is subconsciously biased. <laughs> and and so let's say Lupita, if you want to continue being racist, we'll just give her like a stereotypical. What if she speaks Korean? Well, okay, let's do that then. <laughs> so we have this Korean speaking housekeeper who's a man, all right? Because uh, we're course. gonna violate all the stereotypes. And this dude, we'll call him Daniel Kim. Okay. Uh, Dan Kim uh, is from a neighborhood in LA that is predominantly Korean. He speaks that language. Turns out the population there has a high rate of diabetes, and I'm making this shit up. We know that this happens somewhere in some community, maybe even the Korean community. They smoke a lot, they drink a lot. It's a hierarchical social structure. So there's a lot of, um, there's family tension, high blood pressure. I'm making this shit up, but let's say it's true. And Daniel Kim used to work in housekeeping. They closed his hospital. You retrain Daniel to be a community health worker in his own community. He then brings what he knows from the hospital into the community, integrates with a telehealth provider and EMS that does community paramedicine, actually goes into people's homes, using technology to kind of look at hotspots where disease is and try to figure out if they can, you know, kind of like that old story of the well in England Mm -hmm. where they found cholera. And, and, and look at it in that very holistic way. And that, when I say holistic, it's not this hippie ass shit that people keep saying, well, you know, because for me, holistic means um, I use a little bit of lavender oil and a little bit of mint oil, right. behind, a little behind the ear. Yeah. No, that's different. Holistic as in the whole. The whole, right. right. Look at the larger picture, both the interior of an individual, his or her body, his technological and environmental situation, and his social connection. So it's four quadrants is what makes up a whole in most human holons. And yes, I said holon, Tom Wilber, and I'm going to use the NPR whisper voice now, because when I talk about Ken Wilber's holistic theory, I, I like to say holon. For, okay. For instance, we just had a newborn and it would have been so much easier if like, like I have a perfectly healthy newborn. It would have been so much easier if they sent a nurse to the house and we're just like, Hey, this baby is perfectly healthy. Like continue on with your life for like her one week checkup and her, her two week checkup. And then her one month, I mean, get putting the newborn in the car and getting her out, especially at one week old is like, it's a real to do. You know? uh, and you nailed it because that's why we did a show on this right last year about maternal mortality in the right. U S being through the roof. 
one of the reasons, and, and this oh, and this is true about vitamin K too. We did another show about vitamin mm-hmm. K. Everyone's like, why don't you just give oral vitamin K to infants? Because you have to give like five or six doses, right? You have to give like a bunch of doses yeah. and it has to be given on time. And if you don't give it, uh, a kid could bleed. You're setting your, everybody up for failure. For failure. Because they're not going to be given. Well, know? then why do they give it in Europe? I wonder, is it because they're all communists and they're broke? Well, maybe, but really it's because they have a health worker who goes to the house, follows up with the mother, makes sure the kid's getting the vitamin K, does exactly what you were saying. And so the, the family doesn't need to go in. It's, it's it, This country, we have it all, we have it all backwards. You know, we don't have a social kind of covenant amongst ourselves for healthcare. We we really, we we medicalize our social problems. I've said this before. That's a, the, like you said, like Europe doesn't have it figured out either. No. Nope. Nobody has it figured out. Nope. Right. That's what I. That's what I hate. People are like, well, if you just copy uh-huh. France, or if you just copy Japan, have you been to Norway? Because <laughs> let me tell you something. Norway is a beautiful place. Okay, the fjords are super tight, uh-huh. and everybody there is white, <laughs> and that's why it works. I looked up once what uh, Norway had invented versus what America had invented. America, it's like the semiconductor, the airplane, the telephone, the nuclear bomb. You know, it's a, the, the selfie. List, the list goes on. We right? invented the, the selfie. selfie. That's right. Also, the Belfie. That's a butt <laughs> selfie, people. Um, <laughs> I've never heard of that. Norway invented the paperclip. Oh. But then I looked it up and actually we had invented that five years <laughs> earlier. So, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm with you, Tom Heineberg. I'm a bit of a libertarian that way. I think, I think America is <laughs> uniquely suited to do this game better than anyone's done it, but we fucked it up. I mean, we yeah. continue to fuck it up. So we, we can do better. We will do better, but it's going to require us to stand up together and actually Posit solutions that are going to work, and even then, we're going to feel powerless because the the legacy players are so entrenched in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Like people say, "Oh, it's you know practically a communist bureaucracy in some of these European countries. You never change anything. You can't innovate." Well, the problem is we have aspects of that here. Government still runs you know sixty percent odd of of healthcare through Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, um, the VA, and uh, Tricare. Right. Uh, so you know, why don't we try to figure out what government does well, have them do that, what industry and, and innovators do well, and then what what accountability we need to be asking of human beings, right? Like if you listen to Jordan Peterson and the guys, they're like, you need to basically stand up a, stand up straight like a lobster and take control of your shit, okay? Take your shit and put it in a bowl, stir it up, heat it in a microwave and eat it. I was talking about a family member recently over the Christmas break, you know, because- that's the thing that happens over the Christmas break. You got to be like, what's wrong with this family member? Well, there's a litany of things. <laughs> and I was basically like, you know, she needs to take at least 50% responsibility for her situation. And then I stopped and paused. and I was like, how stupid does that sound? Every adult should be able to take 100% responsibility. And I'm, tr- I'm holding her to the standard of a small child. Yeah. You know, you have to admit that you're at least 50% at fault for this. No, no, no. If you're an adult, you're 100% responsible for everything that happens in oh. your life. You know, this is the thing, man. We've infantilized adults in the U.S. now, and, and you know, again, I've been not to, ho- to, to 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 harp on this ho- coddling of the American Mind book, but the more I read into that book, the more I'm like, wow, we've we've infantilized our children so that a 13 year old now behaves like a 10 year old, right? And an 18 year old be- behaves like a 15 year old, and then they never quite hit adulthood because they're always still. And so what what they're noticing is these kids are coming into college super anxious and depressed. Mm-hmm. One out of seven girls is saying they have a mental disorder. 
Yeah. And it used to be like one out of 18 would say that, would self-identify as that. This, this actually like deeply upsets me when people self-identify as having a mental illness because I actually have a mother who the radio will talk to her and she hears voices. And I'm like, you don't have shit. You have ordinary misery is what Sigmund Freud called right. it. And you just can't hack it. Well, now, 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 I'm not trying to be a dick. People have real stuff. Well, there's don't lie. You are trying to be a dick. The majority of people don't have real stuff. Right. Well, you know what I would say? I would go a step further and say, whether they have real stuff or not, they will have real stuff after they self-identify as having depression and anxiety. Everybody has ordinary misery. Like, it sucks to be alive. Just kill me now, Z. You know what I mean? But... but <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of ordinary misery, dude, try to eat. So we, we, had, a, we had like a huge roasted pig for Thanksgiving because we had a bunch of family, like 20 family over, only ate like a third of the pig at yeah. that time, put it in the freezer, which was an ordeal, defrosted it for just my family of four the other day for right. Christmas, right. yesterday for Christmas. And I had never felt that sick. I ate <laughs> all the chitlins, all the skin, That's and we the best were part. wrapping it in these little tortillas and putting hoisin sauce mm -hmm. on it and eating that. Oh yeah. I woke up in the middle of the night with vomit in my mouth. Like <laughs> it was like a reflux. And, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna aspirate that. Like I'm going out like Jimi Hendrix yeah. or that chick from the Mamas and the Papas. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so ordinary misery, <laughs> depression, anxiety, when you self-identify in one of Jonathan Haidt's points, and he's a psychologist was, when you start labeling yourself, there is something that self-fulfills. It's self-reinforcing, yeah, right, obviously. Right. You know, thought and, patterns change. And I'll tell you, because I'm much closer to this than you are. Like, I'm 29, and I look around at uh, my peers, and I see a lot of people who are struggling with this. You know, mm. they're looking on Instagram, and, like, everybody's lives seem better than theirs. Mm. And they just can't get out of the, the pattern that they find themselves in. And it's hard to get out of it, you know? Mm. Mm. Well, you know, and this fear of missing out and fear of being left out on Instagram, it apparently it affects women and girls much worse. Right. Because, and this was fascinating. I just, just read this in his book, in Height's book, Coddling of the American Mind. That motherfucker should pay me, by the way. I talk about his <laughs> shit so much. You know what's funny is Peterson talks about his shit, Jordan Peterson, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, oh, you guys are, thinker. Yeah, they're all in bed together. So is, this, is that wrong to say? Is that like some kind of weird? No, no. Okay, good. I'm glad because I'm going to say it again. They're all in bed together, Tom yeah. Heinberg, and like spooning <laughs> and, then, and with no protection. So anyways, he, he, he said um, girls seem to be faring worse. Uh, I-gen girls, so these girls born 1995 and later, because... Uh, all the kind of psychological data seems to suggest that boys are physically aggressive. So in other words, they, they manifest aggression by punching you in the face right. or physically bullying you. And you have to have proximity to do that. So social media is not really a thing that makes boys crazy to the extent that it makes girls crazy because girls have what they call a relational aggression. I mm -hmm. love this term, relational. They express aggression by damaging others' reputations, relationships, and social status. Yeah. And so he makes this amazing comparison. He says, okay, so what happens if we just give every boy in the country, or no, 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 you give everybody, every kid in the country a gun and go, here's a gun, learn how to use it, do whatever you want. Well, what would happen is there would be a lot more murders and suicides among boys. So boys would be killing people and killing themselves because that's what they do. They have poor impulse control, they're violent physically in person. Not much would happen to girls. Now, what if you gave everybody a device, say, starting in 2007, that allowed you to connect in a social network from anywhere with pictures and images with anybody anywhere? That's called social media and an iPhone. What would happen? Well, guys would have some problem, but not too much. But girls 
would start going batshit because they would start attacking each other. They would show pictures of themselves with artificially smooth skin. They would then start seeking plastic surgery to look like the pictures mm -hmm. on their selfies on Instagram. Mm -hmm. They would start finding, you know, Jane, they don't like Jane, so they're gonna insert a little rumor on social media and publicly say that she was excluded from the party that they're inviting her to. And she watches that and gets physically hurt by that. So. That's what we've done. So now we have this really, so social media has this, you know, a lot of positives. Obviously we use it, we try to use it for positive, but man, you see it on the fucking ZPAC tribe talk. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, when women, women also need to be perfect. That's our, mm. that's our societal expectation Correct. for women. You need to be the perfect mother. You need to have the perfect body. You need to, you know, have the perfect sunny personality every day, all that kind of stuff. And, and that's, I mean, it's obviously impossible. It's impossible and not desirable. So I have my, so my wife's, you know, my wife's an RN who had, you know, recently had a baby and her friend is an RN at the same hospital who recently had a baby. These are two NICU nurses I'm talking about. Mm. And, you know, on our Instagram, we had a rule like where we were like, we're not going to share any pictures of the baby. We don't want to exploit our baby th this way. And then when the baby came out, we we're like, oh, my God, this baby is so cute. <laughs> we need to post all the pictures we can. Right. And so we post all these happy pictures of the family and my 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 wife's coworker. It had to message my wife and be like, your, ba your baby looks so happy and my baby is not happy and I just don't know what to do about it and, you know, et cetera. And my wife had to be like, yo, sister, like, this is just Instagram. Like, it sucks over here too, you know? <laughs> like, she had to, like, spell it out for her because it looked this one way and it, and it wasn't. I mean, it's just messy at our house too. Oh, man. You know, it's funny because I saw those pictures of your baby and I had a little fear of uh, being left out. I was like, man, I don't remember my baby doing all those things. What the hell? And and then I was like, I, oh, this is Instagram. Yeah, and this is, yeah, I mean, if I had Instagram back then when I had my baby, it just came out. Actually, 2007, we had our first baby. Yeah. And um, I didn't do social media then because I wasn't ZDoc MD and I thought right. social media was for chumps. Well, there was, was like, was was like right. you know, we, we did the, the cute like uh, holiday family PJ photo, which has now become a thing. And, oh yeah, we've uh, done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and we did that and we took, 157 photos. There was one photo where the child was not crying. That's the photo we posted. <laughs> you know, like. Oh, it's almost like you want the description to be like, here's the best of a thousand frames. Right, exactly. The rest are misery. Or like Enjoy people are starting to do like Instagram versus reality. Oh, and yeah. I think a lot of women are starting, especially in the millennial and below generation, are starting to wise up to this and be like, hey, here's my unedited photo. Like, I'm just trying to keep it real with you guys. And other women really respect that because it's like, oh my God. Huge relief. I, I thought I was the only one who had like cellulite and dimples, you know. <laughs> you know what it is? It's funny. So for what's the male equivalent? So for me, when I see, you know, somebody's really successful on social media, just crushing it, I get really, I get a fear of, of being left out. Mm -hmm. Like I'm like, wait a minute, I what am I doing wrong that I'm not crushing it like that? Like yeah. my self-worth is somewhat wrapped up in social media dudes. <laughs> That's why we're here on the day after Christmas doing a, a podcast at my house because I want people to look at me <laughs> it, it, metaphorically because it's just sound. <laughs> money is a big thing with men, you know, yeah, money is status big, games over money. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I went through my thirties obsessed mm -hmm. with getting stuff. And and not only getting stuff, but having other people know that I had stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, I just got this uh, really dope Acura. You know, you may not have heard of it. It's brand new. It's the TL. It's the 2004 TL. It's got leather and blue, this thing called Bluetooth. And uh, I used to polish it and I would obsess about it. And then it got like a couple dings and I was like, fuck this car. <laughs> I was done. 
And then I had my epiphany around age 40 where I was like, stuff is a joke. What are we doing? It's about making a difference in the world. But it took me 10 fucking years. This is, I mean, this is just the same conversation about incentives that we're having. Yeah, like yeah. The incentive is to post yourself being happy and smiling and, you know, live up to that expectation of yourself on Instagram. And the, ex- the expectation is to go into the hospital every day and not care that somebody punched you in the face or mm. that you have to click through all these boxes or that you haven't cared about a patient in five years because you're emotionally dead inside, <laughs> you know? You're not even joking, man. That's exact. That's exactly right. You know, it's like Peterson says. You know, so the, you, you're searching for meaning, mm-hmm. and you're being served garbage. Right. Yeah. You're being served uh, routine and rigmarole, and it doesn't matter where you are in the competence hierarchy at the hospital. You feel like you're at the bottom mm-hmm. because there's always somebody who you're reporting to who's you feel like has it perfect. Like every, everybody looks at the CEOs and they're like, oh, these guys, yeah. they're all about money and they don't understand what it's like to touch patients. And then you go, if you get into the CEO's head for five minutes, you run out screaming because it's an ordeal to do what they do. Totally. Yeah, you know, I mean, they get compensated, but the thing is, again, and, and we need a little more understanding that, listen, competence matters in whatever it is you're doing. And, you know, as I, I was watching Peterson debate um, uh, this GQ reporter. It's kind of a famous thing that happened. Got a bunch of views. It's interesting because they're going back and forth and she's saying, you know, hierarchies can be tyrannical. You can have people at the top that are harming other people. And he's like, but a true hierarchy is a competence hierarchy. It yes. means you find a particular thing that you're good at and you work your way up in terms of competence. And then you don't abuse your power when you're at the top. Mm-hmm. But the, the, his point is we should have a lot of hierarchies so that someone can find something they're good at and just excel and take responsibility and find meaning and purpose. So in medicine, many of us have found meaning and purpose in the particular hierarchy, but then we find that the context it's in is all about money or it's right, all about something right, we, don't, right. we don't necessarily want to deal with. Well, and new hierarchies should be spun up based on new adaptations that are found. They shouldn't be spun up based on uh, some sort of artificial structure. No, you can't create so, it. So yeah. like, think about it like this. Like, is anybody mad, like wealth inequality, is anybody mad at Elon Musk for being rich? No, we're all like, hey, keep doing it, Elon. Like, it seems like you're killing it, right? Build, build us shit we can use, uh-huh. yeah. But are people mad at Mark Zuckerberg for being rich? Hell yeah, because it seems like he's gamifying everybody for his own personal benefit and that he's not providing any real tangible benefit to anybody. Right. Although I'm not mad at Zuck because I'm like, you built the platform that allows us to do what we do. Mm-hmm. But yes, I can see that. And that's true of any or, or people that uh, take advantage of natural resources. Like right, right, if right, you right. made oil money or fracking money or whatever, like people, people tend, tend to, to look, hate you. Look down. Yeah. Right, right. But even that, they're providing a service. You're driving back and forth to work. You just don't appreciate that you're using their oil. That's true. It keeps the price low. But but yeah, but this is the eternal debate. And it's not about capitalism or communism, all that shit. It's about natural competence that you want to promote. That's that's why, you know, you've seen me get pissed off when people don't do their job right. Yeah. That's when I really lose my shit. I never get mad at people for like trying hard or doing whatever, but like when someone, they have one job and that's all they do and they just don't give a fuck. <laughs> I get so, I get violently angry. Well, didn't you think kind of when you were, or at least I thought this way when I was a kid that like the guy who was the garbage man wanted to be the garbage man. Like we all just oh, right, pick yeah. our jobs. And right. We, we pick them. And yeah, we, yeah. And he just probably wanted to be a garbage man. It's quite <laughs> it's lucrative, like, Tom Heineberg. No, yeah. it's not like that. Like <laughs> most of the people that are contractors are contractors because they're failures at life. <laughs> and I'm sorry to offend anybody who's a contractor, but you know what you are. <laughs> You're talking about a general contractor. Yeah, GC. Oh, I have a call with a GC this uh, afternoon, actually. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm going to go mean, in with that attitude. A lot of them are good. I've just had some really bad run-ins oh, with no, bad I contractors. I have too. And I'm uh, racist now against contractors. <laughs> 
Oh, I can't argue with you, my friend. As someone who has remodeled, and that's the correct pronunciation. Remodeling. Remodeling, yes. yeah. Exactly. Because you're changing the mode of your house. But I think, okay, okay so healthcare is not a competence hierarchy. So uh, what kind of hierarchy is it? Well, in some ways, it's a competence hierarchy. So for example, neurosurgeons work their way up to the top of their competence and they get status and reputation based on you know their outcomes in, in an ideal world. Sometimes it's not true. Yeah, but frontline healthcare uh, workers are, are much more competent at actual patient care, which is what you're there to do rather than the administrative side of things, right? So like, I, I think the people who are extracting the most value are probably not the most competent individuals in the hierarchy. So it depends. So if you're, if you're the chief financial officer of a hospital and you're very good at making money and squeezing resources, so dropping nurse staffing yeah. and making sure the material management stuff is super cheap because those are the big costs in hospitals. No, yeah, in general, I'm not talking about health, like hospital CEOs. What I mean more is like these parasitic middlemen that we find all over the place, like PBM fund managers and things like that. You know, mm. Those are the guys who are really extracting the value. And you have to think about healthcare as a whole, as, as the hierarchy. You know? No, I see what you're saying. I guess uh, what I'm saying is they're hier- within the hierarchy of pharmacy benefit managers who are all parasites. Right. Um, they're quite good at doing that. So they rise <laughs> oh, yeah, to the top. They're good at being but parasites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. So it's a parasitic hierarchy. But see, I guess what I'm saying is like, so uh, that, that kind of competence hierarchy, you should value competence and you should value moving up the hierarchy. I think mm-hmm. you should. You should hold people responsible for themselves to do as well as they can within the hierarchy, given the tools they have and also the struggles they have and and have some responsibility to do that. And then create systems that allow them to succeed with an equity of opportunity. Do you think that this has been a sort of a revelation to you because you spent so long in uh, the sanctuary cities and in sort of a liberal groupthink environment? Because in Texas, it's like, yeah, no shit. Like, you're supposed to be competent. Like, <laughs> well, let, let, actually, that's an interesting question. So the VA. Right. All right. I worked at the VA in Palo Alto as a resident for three years. And this is what I found. Some of the best and the brightest were there true tops of their competence hierarchies. And that stood in stark contrast to people who were absolutely incompetent in their job. They were the worst you would ever find. And they were side by side. And my thinking was it's because, first of all, it's very difficult to get fired uh, from that, that government position. And it is, it's an equality, almost an equality of outcome that that group is promoting. They're saying, no, everybody's gonna do fine. Nobody's gonna, no, 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 no. You should have to compete and struggle and show that you're competent in what you do. And if the front desk clerk is you know, high when they show up and is uh, just the worst at what they do, they should be gone. Right. Retrain, do something else, find a different competence hierarchy. But that would sit side by side with people who flourished in the same environment. And I think what I think what a lot of the argument is, is like, look, you wanna create a level playing field so people have opportunities so that the best and the brightest find their hierarchies and ascend. If you equalize all the hierarchies or to put too many systems in place that prevent people from naturally excelling and having support to do that, then you are actually gonna stamp out talent before it ever has a chance to flourish and the world will be worse for it. So as a purely selfish thing, you want people who are good at their shit, like Elon Musk. You want that motherfucker building Teslas and rockets and drilling shit underground. Exactly. Because he may figure out how to save us from ourselves. 
So you want those people to be able to rise, but in, in an environment like the VA, it's tough because well, it, you, yeah. incompetence is rewarded I equally. Think, I think the idea that we should have an, a quality of outcome um, is based on the idea that there's there's stasis in nature and there's there's no stasis. Like everything is either moving in one direction or the other, right? And so you can't just equally divide up the pie and give it to everybody because the pie is ever growing or expanding. You know what I mean? Yeah, you want to grow the pie, ideally. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah. want to keep you know but see but then the question is and people talk about this well how do you handle people at the bottom of competence hierarchies who are there through no true failure of their own in other words they were born into poverty they did not have education they right. had adverse childhood experiences and this is where the i think liberals and the conservatives struggle with each other because the liberals will say you have to help them you have to support them you have to give them uh, opportunities and the conservatives will say you have to teach them responsibility you have to uh give them tough love yeah etc well toxic liber liberalism is when you say the whole game is unfair and we should flip over the entire board right right positive liberalism is when you say you know these dispossessed people uh they need to be managed and taken care of in a compassionate way yeah. right yeah. like y you can have a welfare state you can't necessarily have a communist state because one is too far in the opposite direction. Yeah, and well, you know, you destroy confidence by having a communist state. So Hyde and others have suggested that up to twenty percent of professors in the liberal arts in our college system are Marxists, self-identified Marxists. And the thing is that I, I'm pretty sure we showed that Marxism doesn't work. Yeah, and they'll say, well, no, we just didn't do it right. Hmm, not sure about that. I don't think that's the right way to go. It's some balance of exactly what you're saying. Academia is at the bottom of the hierarchy. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> they think they're at the top, but they're at the bottom because show me an academic who makes $30 million a year. You can find almost any other profession where somebody's making $30 million a year. Yeah, but, they, but see, the thing is they are making the influence on young people that then go out in the world and have this influence in the world. No, I know. I'm just saying they go into academia because they're losers who can't oh. hack it. <laughs> Well, those who can't do teach and those exactly. who can't teach, teach PE. Exactly. They're like, hey, listen, it's not my fault. Like, it's all just power dynamics and everybody's a gender fluid alien. So don't even worry about why I didn't, you know, become successful mom. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder why I even allow you in my house. It's like letting a vampire in, you know, like, come on in, Tom Heineber. Oh, good. I'm going to suck the blood out of you and all your family. Um, speaking of which... <laughs> talking about abject failure. So Kelly Skeff, my program director in his talk actually mentioned something really fascinating, which is since 2013, the degree of people reporting burnout in their professions has gone up by X percent, depending on the specialty, but every single specialty has gone up by a significant percent. Around about 2013 is when we started getting the wellness industrial complex. So people like talking about, we're gonna teach resilience and mindfulness. <laughs> And we're gonna do this and this, and we're gonna have retreats, and we're gonna care about burnout. If this were an FDA drug, this wellness industry, right, it would never have been approved because it has a 100% failure rate. Right. So, it, and he said this in his talk, which I was like, that's awesome, because like, it, it, it takes someone of his stature to be able to say that and get away with it. If I say it, people just call me a dick. Well, makes total sense, because uh, by adding in, <laughs> adding in comparison to the suck, you're increasing the suck. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, I, what I think is that you're, you're you're just you're just reshuffling deck chairs, deck chairs on the Titanic when you're talking about these things. You're not addressing the fundamental moral injury that our system has inflicted on very smart, very compassionate people. Right. Well, you're basically telling everybody, you know, let's all come in in a group circle and we'll be mindful. And it's like, hey, I ha I'm having some arising thoughts that are saying that this sucks and I hate this and I want to leave and burn this place down. It's like, well, let's just stuff those back down, okay? <laughs> 
Look, from a practical standpoint, I can just tell you the best days of my career are where I could spend time talking to my patients. I felt like I've made a difference and my note was three lines. Right. And those were the days when I had house staff to write the rest of the note. And, and so they would write a big long note and I'd be like, agree with above, here's a couple things I'm thinking. And I would go in after the resident saw the patient and just sit with the patient, nothing in my hand and talk to them, make eye contact. And I would come out feeling energized, like that was a good experience. Mm-hmm. That person is gonna, is gonna do better as a result of me being there. And I am doing better as a result of being with the patient. So those days where I could do that, I, I, I've said this before, I had a little diary and I would say, I, I am blessed to do what I do. This is, they're gonna catch me because this cannot last. And it, and it didn't because I think the business of medicine caught up. They said, you can't make money spending time with patients. You need to document all this stuff because otherwise we won't have the data to do the quality improvement and the measurements that <laughs> right. are gonna fix. Now, the thing is, the truth is, yeah, we fuck stuff up all the time. We kill people in the hospital on the daily through errors that are entirely preventable because we don't have our shit together. It's no one's fault. It's a system that's not a system. So we do need data, we do need, but look, I think we ought to be focusing on creating artificial intelligence to do that shit and letting us do what we know is good, which is spending time with the patient, generating relationships with them and with the team, using the technology then to to do the right thing for the patient and stepping up in our competence hierarchy to the best we can be, which means taking the shit off our plate that distracts from that. Exactly. If we can do that, you fix all of healthcare because it ripples out in a network across everything from Daniel Kim, the housekeeper, the Korean speaking housekeeper from LA, all the way up to, you know, Billy Bob Thornton, the CEO. I don't know why I came up with that name, but he, uh, who is gonna, who's gonna be a compassionate leader as opposed to a manager of money and, and little tokens. I mean, Peter Thiel, uh, who's the famous venture capitalist has this idea that basically, you know, he started this company Palantir around the idea that uh, humans and AI should work in conjunction, that it shouldn't be a one or the other solution. And I think that's what we're going to see coming to medicine if people build the systems in the correct way. Yes. Right. I agree. I think this is very exciting. And actually, so again, Kelly said he ended his talk being optimistic. I'm beyond optimistic. Like, I think this is absolutely a tipping point where, we're gonna transcend this shitty epic technology that we have now that was built for a purpose that was the wrong purpose. We're gonna make Judy Faulkner rich. Yes. (laughs) That was the purpose. (laughs) To build the epic hyperspace arena Uh on their campus, which is like three X the size of the Steve Jobs (laughs) arena. I actually have no idea. I like, I don't know why I like to bash on them. You know why? Because they're not nice to me. (laughs) That's why. yeah, and so you know, for all the, for all that, I think uh, a, a tipping point's coming. So 2019, right? That was the whole point of this podcast. We didn't talk shit about it. What's well, so hard? It's it's kind of difficult. It's but, hard to be like in 2019, I'm going to fix healthcare in X, Y, and Z way. That's right. Here are my resolutions. <laughs> that's hard. it's hard to do. Number one, <laughs> I think one of the things that we can do uh, specifically on your platform is just give people more of a a space to talk to each other and be like, and get over the prisoner's dilemma of Mm. what's going on and basically be like, Hey, it sucks over here. Does it suck over there? Oh my God. It sucks over here. Should we burn this whole thing down? I have matches. (laughs) So that's, that's a, that's called communalization of pain. Exactly. And it's the number one thing people tell me when they come up to me after a live performance and they say, you know what you do for me is I go home and I'm pissed and I had a shitty day and I watch your video and it looks like other people are having a shitty day, but they're having fun. So now I feel part of this tribe of people having a shitty day and I can get through another day. 
it's sad that we've come to the point where that has to happen. Like my, you know, I've said this before, like the Doc Vader index, like the day that Doc Vader is no longer popular is a day we've fixed medicine. Yeah, people are just exactly. like, why is that guy so pissed off? He's an asshole. Well, part of the thing too is like, you know, the ordinary misery uh, part of life used to kind of be taken care of by God and church mm. and family. Mm. Like you would go to church once a week and mm. you would be like, you know, yeah, it sucks, but hey, there's like mansions in the sky, people. You know what I mean? And we've sort of gotten over that because we science we, we looked at the Bible literally and we were all like, yeah, literally, it's a bunch of crap, right? <laughs> Metaphorically, there's a lot of truths in there. That's like a Peterson ideology that's right. like, yeah, a lot of these are metaphorical truths. Right. And, you know, there are astute observations in the Bible, but there are also parts of the Bible where you're like, yeah. hey, listen, I will spill my seed, okay, Mr. God? <laughs> I have a lot of seed. <laughs> There's a part of the Bible nobody ever talks about where uh, God sicks a she-bear on three uh, teenagers who like mess with a bald man. What? Yeah, and they keep saying, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And so God, he asks God to smite them, and God does. He sends a bear to smite them. Wow. That's in the what Bible. An interesting implement of smititude. <laughs> Send a bear. But, you know, I, I, it's actually getting back to, again, Jonathan Haidt. He, the data kind of correlations. Now these aren't causation, but more depression, more anxiety in kids correlated with increased screen time over two hours a day and uh, increased TV time. Right. So those two things. Now correlations with kids that don't have that many problems, um, obviously less screen time, uh, more um, uh, church time. So kids going to church, like attending religious services, mm-hmm. um, more in-person friendships, that they have, more reading of books, more doing homework, believe yeah. it or not. People are trying to get rid of homework, but it's actually correlated with kids that are less depressed and anxious. And um, and those things, and sports, physical activity. So, hey, how about this? Get out and play with some friends. If you have a religion, go indulge in it. If you don't, meditate or do whatever it takes to make you feel connected to a higher uh, purpose or a spirituality, whatever that is. Yeah. And uh, and don't fucking stare at your phone all day, every day. We did this screen-free Sunday now, two days, two weeks in a row, and it's been amazing. Even the kids are now looking kind of a little forward to it. They get all their screen time in the night before, and then the next day they're like, okay, what are we gonna do today? <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. Of course, I'm not sure that really works, but <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because if we're being totally brutally honest with ourselves, we have to all collectively admit that we've replaced, you know, those of us that are uh, not going to church anymore have to admit to ourselves that we've replaced religion with a myriad of different things in our lives. That's why politics is central to the conversation. Mm. You know, like my personal religion is, is Bitcoin and I spend <laughs> a lot of time like doing that and, mm. you know, engaging in that. And that provides me with some sort of higher purpose. But we all have to have that higher purpose. If we don't, it's like, you know, in, in the 12 step, uh, they say, Hey, it doesn't have to be God. It can be anything. Like you just have to admit you're powerless, right. And that you need something, uh, above you. And in so the, that can be anything you want. It can be the earth or it can be, you know, mother Gaia, whatever, pick something, pick something. Yeah. Uh, they don't let you skip that step. And it's interesting because in Michael Pollan's book, um, uh, how to change your mind about psychedelics mm-hmm. and resurgence in psychedelic research. He he talks about the co-founder of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. His higher his higher uh, power actually was an experience with a belladonna alkaloid, which is a hallucinogen, and he had a mystical experience, and yep. that was what he cites. Not not God per se. Yeah, Cary Grant also um, big LSD. had an LSD uh, epiphany, and yeah. that's how he got uh, he stopped drinking. Yeah. 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 Uh, it, actually, that book 
is transformative. I know you think it's not something you need because you already know this, but I think for it's the, for, I think it's for the normies is what for I the told normies, Z. That's Z what he was told like, me. you should read this book, Tom Heidenberg. It's amazing. I was like, I don't need some guy to tell me how great drugs are. I know how great drugs are, Z. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would say, z you should read the book. And, and, you know, listen, all the smart kids are reading this book right now, like Peter Atiyah and Sam Harris and, and, and Tim Ferriss and all these dorks, the intellectual <laughs> dork web. They're all, they're all doing this shit. And uh, there's a reason because it's actually true. And the resurgence in psychedelic research will change a lot of lives, including things like that aren't classic psychedelics like MDMA, uh, AKA Molly or ecstasy. Did you hear that Oregon uh, is going to decriminalize psilocybin or they're thinking about decriminalizing psilocybin? That's there's an actual initiative on the ballot. That's amazing. I will, I will express reservation about that. Yes. I will tell you why, because I think psilocybin and these hallucinogens are are not ideal as a recreational, let's go do some shrooms, man. Like, you could have a very bad experience. Well, you when you take them recreationally, as I have many times, mm-hmm. you quickly realize, oh shit, this is not a recreational Mm-mm. drug, and uh, now I'm having a very deep, introspective uh, sort of look at myself, and I don't like what I'm saying. That's right. <laughs> no. It's a, it's a, exactly. It's the difference between taking like these shitty binoculars you get at Walmart, right? Like looking exactly. at birds, and taking a military grade spec <laughs> infrared. infrared. Yeah, yeah. Like, and you're like, oh shit, oh god, that bird is hideous. <laughs> like all I see is taint, bird taint. I don't want to see that. You need a guide. You need a, a clinic circumstances and then maybe you can do it recreationally as a reminder every so many years but it can be very devastating if you're in the wrong set and setting and you don't and you're not getting anything out of it all you're doing is being paranoid yeah or seeing the worst aspects of you because what what those drugs can do is reveal a sort of third person perspective on your own ego and the ego doesn't like that it's 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 very unhappy to be looked at that way it's kind of like those instagram selfies like you just go oh god why can't I be like that? I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> but in reality, at an ego dissolving dose of psilocybin, which is a heroic dose, the ego disappears. And, and one of the theories is why people come back from these experiences saying, I can't describe to you what happened. It's ineffable. I can't describe it, but it is absolutely has the quality of revealed truth to me. In other words, it's changing my life because I've seen something true about either myself or the nature of things, whatever. And part of the part of the one of the theories that he has in the book is that it's because with dissolution of the ego, there is nothing left to doubt the experience that you're having. Yeah, because the ego is yeah. really good at sitting there going, "Yeah, man, but it's probably all you just on drugs." Probably because you're a piece of shit, you know. <laughs> probably because of that. Remember when you failed second grade math and Mrs. Johnson was like, "You never gonna be a smart doctor." Yeah. Well, you know what? She was right because now you're dumb and you're doing mushrooms out in the desert somewhere by yourself. By the way, this is yet another one of those podcasts where people are going to be like. You know, you said you were just going to fix healthcare, and that's why I listened. And then you spent the whole time talking about drugs, and you let Tom bash Jesus, and I don't like that. <laughs> and you know what I say to that? Psych, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> it's my podcast, and I'll lie if I want to. Well, we're just trying. It's 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 all just trying to get down to the truth. It's yeah, like, what is the truth? It's a journey, people. You know? Like, and you you're getting an honest. Like, we don't prep any of this shit. Like, this is this is how this went down today. Tom and I were texting this morning. What do you want to do today? Same thing we want to do every day. Try to take over the world. <laughs> so Tom's like, well, come over. We'll do a podcast. Cool. What about? Doesn't matter. We do the podcast. That's how we do it. This is how we talk in real life. Like this, these are the conversations. Very true. You know, I was yeah. explaining to my, uh, my sister-in-law. She was like, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, you know, work is actually very cognitively hard for me because I have to engage with Z, who is very smart every day for like about five or six hours on <laughs> topics that generally I'm out of my depth on because I know nothing about healthcare. 
And so, you know, I'm always trying to infer what's going on. Right. And, you know, I think sometimes like you, uh, you obfuscate your intelligence on the show and you're like, hey, I'm ZDogMD, the clown. But really, uh, Z is a super introspective thinker who spends most of his time reading and in quiet thought. It just doesn't seem that way because his personality is <laughs> the opposite of that. Don't make me pull out my dick. <laughs> no, but it's, it's funny because Tom, Tom has to flex his mental muscle. But the thing is, he has the muscle to flex. So when he flexes it and he's been flexing it for now for two years straight, in a very painful way because it's shit that he's not innately necessarily, you know, he's not like, I really fucking care deeply about healthcare, even though my wife's in it, but he has to force, he's forced to think about it. And now his brain's all like hypertrophied and shit and he has nothing to do with it. Like he's, he goes home, <laughs> stares at his cute baby, d- deals with Bitcoin, which is a different part of his brain. And uh, it's wonderful. I love to see it because uh, it's like destroying this poor human. He has no business. You know, my whole thing about healthcare, why I find it very hard to uh, actually care about it deeply is because mm. I'm like, well, we're all going to be fucking dead. So <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to poke and prod me a little while? Like, There's a secret part of me that feels like we're all going to be replaced with computers. I think medicine is very good at some things like preventing uh, the spread of infectious disease. Medicine is very good at that. Like basically everything else, bunch of crap. Mm. That's, I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I, I don't feel. disagree. Yeah. I don't disagree. Hey, one of the, one of my evangelical sort of movement uh, goals is to tell people we don't know what we're doing. So go in with open eyes and understand that we've gotten really good at some things, but the rest of it, it's like, you know, I always cite this really, cause I'm a nerd, this scene in Star Trek for the journey home where they go back in time to San Francisco to try to save the whales because the whole thing was written by hippies. And Bones, the doctor is like, he walks onto a hospital ward cause they have to rescue Chekhov who had a traumatic brain injury and was bleeding in his brain. And they're gonna try to drill burr holes in his brain to release the, the pressure from the blood. And Bones looks at them, you know, he's 500 years in the future, and he's like, but burr holes, barbarians, what is this, the Middle Ages? He's like, you just take this pill and call me in the morning. And and he like gets this woman off dialysis with a pill, and he like just talks. <laughs> and and I'm like, that's what it's going to be like even just 20 years from now. You're going to look at us and be like, you guys are barbarians. Why are you sitting here masturbating over how to fix healthcare? You don't even know what you're doing. Well, it's going to be like that if it doesn't get fucked up because yeah. it could easily get siloed and That's, we could see a healthcare winter. This is my goal. That's what I want to get us through the winter together. All of us go, okay, okay. We're in a real deep, dark funk. Right. Everybody agrees. Man, Kelly fucking Skeff, my program director, like one of the bright lights in the universe of positivity gave the most depressing talk I've ever heard. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is a tipping point. It actually fired me up. I was like, oh, I'm going to fucking break shit in 2019 and I'm going to get Kelly on the show and we're going to talk about it. And cause so it, we need everybody on board to do it. Uh, like already dude, there's like 2,500 supporters who like pay 499 to just hang out and talk about healthcare shit. And they're the ones it's, it's interesting because when we do a regular show now, like we did the Dr. Seuss or whatever last night, mm-hmm. they, um, they're the ones really commenting. These are hyper engaged super fans. If we can get that audience, even to a tipping point of 10,000 people, 10,000 active, one activated person can make a huge difference in the world. Imagine what we could do. Oh my God, dude, it's actually terrifyingly awesome. Cause, cause, and they don't all agree politically, but they're very nice to each other. And when they when they have disagreements, they do it in this very sophisticated way. Imagine if that could be a model for you know healthcare transformation around the country. It's, we don't have to imagine it; it's going to be. 
So remember the time in this country when you could hang out with people you disagreed with politically? Wait, what? <laughs> that happened? No. Well, so, and again, I'm coming back to the same book, John Haidt, Coddling the American Mind. He, he, they've done data on um, what they call affective uh, political disagreements. Affect meaning like emotion. So what's happened is you have a polarization since the end of the Cold War, since the 90s in particular, where the degree of hatred, like I hate Republicans or I hate Democrats, has gotten to, to record levels. So you've demonized the other side to the point where you cannot understand their moral foundation for why they're doing what they're doing. So what do they value? Liberty versus oppression, sanctity versus degradation, equity versus cheating. You can't even get to that level because you're too busy thinking of them as abjectly evil. I used to be this way. Like I'd look at certain political beliefs and be like, that person, I cannot even respect them as a human being because they feel these things. But then as you start to realize, no, 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 they have a moral foundation that values these things. To them, this is abjectly a good way of seeing the world. And they didn't choose those moral foundations. Those were things that were conditioned in. Some of them are genetic. Some of them are they raised a certain way and in a certain church and whatever. So you can start to understand and then have a dialogue. And, the, and and this is the thing. So the other data on this says, if I show if I show you as a Republican a piece of very compelling information to me as a moderate, you know, whatever, uh, you're going to look at that same data and be outraged, like angry about it. Whereas I'm going to be so excited, and it's because we have different moral foundations. We're looking at different emphases. Like you're going to see someone taking away your right to defend yourself with a weapon, say. And I'm gonna, and I'm just, again, I'm just, I'm not saying we actually believe these things. I'm saying this is a example. I'm gonna see, oh, I just prevented a kid from accidentally being shot with a weapon. Now, the truth is obviously nuanced, but our own moral foundations are gonna allow us to uh, value certain things and take away from certain studies what we want, the kind of cherry picking confirmation bias. And we're never gonna come to an agreement because we're not gonna respect what the other person's moral foundation is telling them. So if we can do that, and that's another goal for 2019, and like, let's get people to think more critically and also feel other people's moral foundations in a way that allows them to be respectful so that we can have a dialogue again, because that's been missing. And turn off the goddamn news. Yeah. Uh, what a waste of time. Isn't it funny that we were living in a world uh, just five years ago where people who were smart read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and now people who are smart stay the hell away from those things? Right. It's weird. It's like, you you know, people talk about deleting Facebook and all this, but yeah. the bigger movement has been to stop watching the news. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's good for people in the sense that now you're disconnected from issues. You wanna be connected to the issues, but the problem is the news on both sides of political spectrum is motivated by clicks and by emotion and by the moral foundation of whatever it's based in. So whether New York Times is on the left and Fox News is on the right or Breitbart is on the right, whatever it is. It, 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 so my mom, right? So in her old age, she it's funny because she has these very liberal viewpoints on things and extremely conservative viewpoints on other things. So she's like the classic, just purely issue driven. And um, she just sits and watches the news all day now because she's retired and putters around the house and has got TVs in every room on to Fox News all day. And when we have our weekly call, she's like, did you see what happened? with Trump. I can't believe they're treating him that way. Right. And I'm like, mom, I don't watch the news. Oh, but did you see what they did? And then he called the, the Santa and the seven-year-old and he basically told him like, snap out of it, Santa's a lie. I mean, wouldn't you want to say that? 
And everyone was so mean to him, these liberals. I can't believe it. <laughs> I do like that the one time Trump was supposed to lie, he couldn't pull it he off. He couldn't pull it off. You know, it, we know what's funny is like he's <laughs> he's he's renowned for being anti-scientific. Yeah. And this time he was just purely scientific. Well, you know, the news thing is interesting because it's just another uh, set of incentives that produced yeah, that's right. what we had as, you know, if you look at the history of the news before we had the last hundred years or so of centralization in the news business, we had basically yellow journalism ruled the day. Mm. And now yellow journalism rules the day. Mm. And the middle period was because everybody had a regional monopoly. And because in order to protect your regional monopoly, what do you do? You do the same thing that Facebook and Google are doing now. You say, we're not evil, we're impartial, we're trying to be neutral. And that's how you continue to print money. Because for a long time, these guys, you know, I grew up around the newsroom. My father was in the newspaper business. And these guys would just call up advertisers year after year and be like, it's going up 6%. Mm. And the advertisers just had to sit there and take it. Mm. And then the internet killed it, right? Mm. And so you see this, you know, what we're all kind of stuck in right now is the dissolution of the, uh, you know, it's a, it's a death spiral mm. that's happening in news media. Yeah. And we're nothing new has emerged yet. I mean, I guess... What I do right now is I get consensus through like many platforms. So I kind of see what like that's right. 15 different organizations are saying and then random people on Twitter that I follow. And then I make my own sort of worldview from there. I that's don't like, right. listen to, I don't read one article and say that's enough. I, I know what's going on now, you know. I, I enjoy too that there have emerged in this milieu some individuals and thought leaders that are true moderates that can actually speak to both sides of these issues. Right. You know? And actually, you know, people will say Peterson's on the right. He's actually more just slightly right of center. Bare, barely. 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 He's really a centrist. And John Heights, another guy who's a pure moderate, used to be an intellectual liberal, is a pure moderate. John, you know, Sam Harris calls himself a classic liberal and he is on some level, but he's also quite he's quite moderate on different things and just purely based on issues. He's like, there's no dogma. It's like, here's the thing, here's yeah. the thing, yeah. I, you know, I could be liberal in a different time. I just can't be liberal in this Currently, time. yeah. Well, yeah. liberal has changed its definition. Liberal a used to mean that, you know, you believed everybody should live and uh, act by the same rules. And now liberal means there should be special rules for each group of marginalized peoples. The more the identity politics type of deal. Uh -huh. it's, it's funny, so Peterson was talking about that with um, in the interview and he said, well, and they're sort of like, well, you, you're, you're talking about the Judeo, you know, what the U.S. was built on was identity politics, right? It was white men having property and being free, but it was white men. And he's like, no, actually, that was a Judeo-Christian ethos, which said both men and women are created in the image of God and therefore are endowed with certain inalienable rights. And it just slowly unfolded from the orig origin of that thought to the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence, the US Constitution, the abolishing of slavery, and it continues to do that. But then what we see with identity politics is a return of pure tribalism. And if you listen to people like Ben Shapiro, they'll say that we're um, still running on the fumes of Judeo-Christian values, so that we're not actually off any Judeo-Christian standard, That that we still are running on the fumes of that society mm. and that we may be running to a very scary new place where it's just straight tribalism, mm. where the fumes have exhausted. The fumes are exhausted and there's nothing, you know, and I, he was talking about something that... Um, it's the, very tricky too. These are intractable problems the, because like you can't look at the Bible as a smart, thinking, rational person and think that it's a, you know, diagnostic manual for how to live your life. Like there are a lot of problems with it and it leads to a lot of abuses of power in different organizations, the Catholic Church being... The main one I can think of. And you're yeah. a you're a Catholic. I was an altar boy. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't remember a lot of it, so who knows what <laughs> happens, Z. <laughs> oh.
They call you Count Digula. My, you know, and it, it's it's a generational thing too. My grandmother used to get so mad at me for you know uh, your apostasy, bashing Apo- the ca- apost- bash, bashing the Catholic yes. Church, and it's like apostasy. That's can, the word. How can you back the Catholic Church? You know what I mean? If if just three coaches in the NBA were pedophiles and they let them continue to coach, we would shut down the NBA. <laughs> you know, that's a different podcast, Tom. <laughs> Uh, is it, the pedophile podcast is coming soon in 2019. <laughs> so definitely hit subscribe. Well, so I think, I think we've actually hit what an hour and six minutes. So we should probably, what do you think we should do? Yeah, um, let's wrap it up. Yeah, wrap it we're up. going to turn into a pumpkin. We're going to, yes. And we're going to speak in pumpkin voice. Anyway, this has been NBR, NPR whisper talk. And, um, here at NPR, we rely on your support. Become a supporter on Facebook for four ninety nine a month. It helps us a lot. Also hit, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. <laughs> and we're looking forward to 2019, bitch. So what, what? What, 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 what? So stay tuned because shit's going to get real. We love you guys and we out. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.